I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are out on the pitch, giving you the play-by-play so that you don't have to watch the whole game. Why did you do that? Why did you say that? Because we're reading Sporty Spice's book and I wanted to have a sporty (laughs) intro. Okay. And if you don't like it, baby, just watch the game yourself, okay? Viva forever. (laughs) (laughs) We are back from a long trip and you can hear it in us already. But we are comfier, cozier, and happier than we've ever been because we are in our brand new studio chairs. They are from Sixpenny Home. It's called the Devon Chair and it is the chair of my literal dreams. Do you ever go to sleep dreaming of the comfiest place you've ever been? You say bed, not enough. I wish I was cozier. And this is what that would have been. I will say, I don't know that it's optimal for podcasting for me to be this comfortable. (laughs) I already know what's going to happen. And we're already going to get into a fight because somebody's going to come to the studio early and be like, I just have 50 more pages to read. I'll just go read in the studio chairs. And then the other person will come and meet them. And they'll be like, I have not read a page. I've just been sleeping and snoozing. I disagree. I think that this chair makes me want to be my best self. I'll tell you something. My most primed best self isn't a sleep self. (laughs) When I'm happy, I'm sleeping, baby. I am so happy they're here. I cannot wait to spend the rest of my life sitting on this chair. Thank you guys so much to everybody who came out to all of our shows. New York City was the last and final one. We haven't done it yet. I'll be honest. I almost lied to you guys, but I'd rather die than lie. (laughs) We haven't done New York yet, so I will not say it went well because, again, who who knows? knows? There's always the fear of that comet, the asteroid striking Earth. But everyone else who came out to every other show we've done so far, we are so grateful for you. I'm so happy. I had so much fun at those shows. It was amazing to meet you guys, to perform for you guys. Thank you so much to everybody it's who showed up. everything we've ever dreamt of. Truly our dreams coming true. I actually related a lot to Mel C this week because I was like, oh, you went on an international sold out tour? Sort of me too. <laughs> Save it for the episode. Anyway, Claire, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title the chapter? I'm going to make an honest woman of you, Ashley. Uh, Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm going to give Bug a dad. Okay. No, I'm not. So what happened was this. In Austin, I got a chia seed pudding from a vending machine that quite literally changed my life. (laughs) We have now been to other countries, other continents. We've been on planes, trains, and automobiles. And all I can talk about is chia seed pudding that I had from a vending machine. You also liked the chia seed pudding from Gales. Yeah, but honestly, I like the vending machine one more. Okay. I was like, you know, I just moved. Should I take this new chapter upon myself to learn to make chia seed pudding? And Ashley kept introducing me at every show as somebody who's about to learn. And I was like, don't set me up for failure, Ashley. You know that I'm the kind of person who says I'm going to learn to make chia seed pudding and then just absolutely never does. Yes. But now that I've slept in my house twice for the first time, <laughs> now that I've been home for two whole nights, I'm like, you know what? We're actually quite far from anything where you could eat breakfast. And by quite far, I do mean a block and a half. But the closest place to eat breakfast is a crepe place. And I'm like, I am two for two on having Nutella crepes for breakfast and sleeping there. And I was like, this is not sustainable. I can't be eating crepes and Nutella every morning for breakfast. And I was like, you know what I actually would love? to just like mosey downstairs and make myself a cup of coffee and have a chia seed pudding. And I think I'm going to do it. I no longer live on like a massive thoroughfare of commerce and eateries. I'm like, oh God, I guess I'm in the suburbs. (laughs) And I'm going to become kind of like suburban. I'm going to start like eating things from the fridge and like making a cup of coffee. I am really excited for this phase of your life. When you come over, I think I'm just going to have like things to offer you. I would love that because it's such a trek. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were to chapter last week's episode for yourself, what would it be? You've been hacked. 
Oh my God, have we been hacked? No, but I recently learned the term biohacking and I want to do it. I feel so stressed out by how much my body is just tired. I'm like, why should I be this tired? Okay, how do people travel all the time? And there are people who just like get on planes constantly and I feel like I do one thing and I'm like, well, that takes it out of me for two weeks. The fact that we were on a plane all day yesterday and then are supposed to be just like around today, I'm like, but how could it be? How could people do two things in one week? I think I think I need vitamins. I would agree. And I'm going to take them. I can't wait. And I think that next week, sleepiness, body needs, they won't get me down because I'll be hacked. If it works for you, let me know. You guys, this week we're talking about Sporty Spice, Mel C. Her book has two different titles. I got mine in London, and it is called Who I Am. Claire's is the American version, and it is called The Sporty One. It's just the title. None of the extremely Britishisms were edited. I used to be like, why do they do like a UK version and a US version of some books? I can figure out what a fucking jumper is. And reading this book, I'm like, all right, they should have translated this baby. This is the Bible in its original form to me. I have no idea what it's they're Rosetta saying. It's Rosetta Stone for English speakers. <laughs> it really was. I'd read sentences and be like, this is a different culture altogether. This is something I could never understand, not with a thesaurus. Anyway, without further ado, what we could gather of Sporty Spice. So Mel C, Melanie, I've not looked up how to say her last name. It's like Chisholm or Sisholm or Sisum. I think it's Chisholm. Do you know what? I looked on Wikipedia to see if they had like a dialect spelling. You know, sometimes they do that thing with the dashes and the bobs. Mm-hmm. They don't. Can I say she's Mel C and she is the sporty one. So Mel C was born January 12th, 1974. And in true Jim Hamilton fashion, she starts every chapter with the exact same text that Ashley receives every week. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, my dad is a huge fan of Saturday Morning Flashback on WXRT, Chicago's Finest Rock. And every Saturday morning, they pick a different year and they only play songs from that year. And my dad loves to wake up and before the show starts, he likes to first tell us everything that happened that year that was important, like all the good movies and all the things. And then he likes to kind of list all the albums as sort of a guess of what they're going to play on Saturday Morning Flashback. And she does that, but it's not even guessing or playing a game. She's just painting a picture of what was going on that year, and none of it matters. Like everybody else with nothing to say, she for some reason needs three intros to get to the actual meat of this book, which is, again, meatless. We have an introduction, which lets you know that in summer 2021, a butcher said, It's nice that life's returning to normal, huh? Referring to the COVID-19 crisis pandemic. And she said, normal. My life's never been normal. And that makes her think, maybe I should write a book. A lot of people asked us to cover this book because we covered the other Spice Girls. And let me tell you what, there is not one single thing in here that wasn't covered in those other books that was important. It turns out when five women only have one story to tell, you actually don't need to hear it five separate times. Emma, if you're listening, put the pen down. She really goes back and forth on whether or not she wants to write this book. She says, do I want to be in the headlines again? Lucky for her, I think that this book kind of flopped and so she wasn't. We like could not find it in London. We found one book that had one copy and they were like, we got rid of the rest because it's not on the charts. And I was like, good Lord. But then I read this book and I go, I see why. I see why this is a flop commercially. She does this thing throughout the book where she loves to take mundane moments and tie them to grander things. I think it is a symptom of being newer to therapy. I don't think she is new to therapy. I feel like she's been in it for like 10 years. No, I feel like she's gone a few times over 10 years. I think she's newer to like really being in therapy. She always talks about therapy as like one-off adventures. Like I went to a therapist that day. 
But she does these like grand sweeping things that really make you roll your eyes. She's talking about the Spice Girls and she says, we broke records and made history. We didn't invent girl power, but I think we were successful at catapulting the phrase, the ideology and the culture to a whole new generation of young people who have gone on to build on that movement by creating hashtag times up and hashtag me too. That makes me incredibly proud. I don't want to say you're wrong. I don't want to say you're wrong, but it's so funny to like be humble and be like, we didn't even invent the phrase girl power. What we did do is create these bigger movements. (laughs) Without wannabe, how could anybody have said no to sexual injustice? This intro, I don't think we need to read very much more of it because it just sums up the rest of the book and I wish it had just been an intro. Following the intro, we get the prologue. 1988, it's springtime, I'm 14 years old and I've got a dance competition tomorrow. And this is to introduce us to her perfectionism. She wants to win the competition. I know I'm capable, I just had to put the work in. So I practice, but I don't just practice. I do the moves over and over and over again. I don't know, this woman is so unremarkable and that sounds so mean. And this book is so bizarre and at times very interesting, but at other times I'm like, who, what? It's like, she's just this regular person, you know, who happened to, for a minute, have like bumped into a famous person. You're like, God, that's so random. I can't believe that happened. What an interesting story. And then you're like, oh, you were headlining a concert And that famous person like wanted to come meet you. She really is the pussycat doll of the Spice Girls. I will say, I think that this book could have been a real opportunity for her to make herself seem interesting. If this book was re-edited, it could have been a 198-page interesting book. But it is instead a 418-page boring book. I really would have been like, oh, that's what happened to Sporty. Okay. But instead, it was years off my life. So let's get through her childhood. Her parents were young musicians. She talks a lot about how they were musicians. She never really talks about how that might have paved the way for her to become a musician. It's really bizarre that she never makes that connection explicitly. So she's talking about this photo of her at the Queen's Jubilee on June 6th, my birthday, 1977. And this photo of her to her represents like the last time she was truly happy. And it was like a turning point in her life. I do feel like whenever we have people referencing a photo of themselves as the glory days, it makes me think that you've like invented this thing to be like, that's something I could return to. How could I have not been happy? Look at how happy I look in this photo. Anyway, you may see photos of me today and think I'm happy, but you'd be wrong. But this photo is different. I can't remember the circumstances, but I look happy. So how could I not be? So when she was three or four years old, her parents got divorced and her life was never the same again. Her mom never stopped doing music. She was always gigging around town. She had a couple of almost big breaks where she was signed to record labels. She was with groups that had some potential and nothing really took off. But she refused to give up on music and is well known for gigging around town to this very day. It was first just the two of them. They lived in council estate housing, which I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's like government subsidized housing. And Mel C says it was very rough. They were like in Liverpool. She calls themselves Scousers, which I'm worried of saying. But that's what she says. She says it a lot, though. She says it lovingly. I think that's just like a Liverpudlian. But she like grew up in kind of a tougher part of town. But she says she never realized they didn't have that much because everybody had the same amount. And within a year, her mom just brings home this man named Den one time. And she's like, hey, this is Den. And then Den just never moved out, which I think is probably not the way therapists would recommend you introduce your child to a new partner. She did have this kind of odd, loving slash neglected upbringing. I mean, she had a great relationship with her mom, but her mom would leave when she got certain gigs. She would go on tour. So she and Den were in a band together and they got a gig where they were out of town for weeks at a time. And they just got this 19-year-old to come stay with them who would just fully neglect Melanie. 
Mel would come home from school and there would be no one to let her into her home. And so she would just have to wait on the steps until her babysitter came home. And it could be hours and hours and hours. And she would just sit on the steps shivering. Somehow she realized that I was being passed from pillar to post and that Claire had moved her boyfriend in and moved me out. Perhaps the neighbor finally told her what had been going on. That's really bad to have a five-year-old who's like locked out of her own house and nobody's watching her. But her mom comes back from the gig that her and Den had been on and she's pregnant. So it seems like from then on, they had this new baby they had to watch out for. And that kind of reestablishes them as a nuclear family with Den and her mom. But from the time her parents got divorced, Mel always felt like she didn't fit in anywhere. She always found it very unfair that everybody else had a nuclear family and she didn't. She had half siblings on her dad's side, a half sibling on her mom's side, and then two older stepbrothers from her mom's husband. There was just a lot of steps and halves going on. Mel was the only girl, but she always felt like she was the only person who didn't fit in and she was never getting all of the attention that she had hoped for. She really credits this to her wanting to become a pop star. She says she was like always seeking attention. But she puts her dad on a pedestal and she even recognizes that she did so. I saw dad, but only on weekends and holidays. I'd go over and we'd watch Match of the Day and eat tinned ravioli or he'd cook me his one specialty meal, chili con carne. She like loved him a lot. And at one point he kind of had a midlife crisis. He was probably 29. And he just like went to America and Latin America and Canada for like six months. So at one point her dad just like up and left. Yeah. And then when he came back, he got a job as a camp manager at camps in Spain. And France. And France. And so they would go on these cool vacations where they'd be just like camping in Spain. He'd be away for months at a time. I didn't get to see him as much as I would have liked, but I did have great holidays with him. My parents' divorce filled me with guilt. I always felt like it was my fault. When they separated, I took on this idea that I wasn't enough to keep them together. It impacted my relationships later in life. I ended up being drawn to men who were fun but unreliable. I do think my turbulence of those formative years is a big part of my success. It's what made me so determined to succeed. It gave me a hunger for acceptance and attention. I wanted, needed people to notice me, to like me, to be entertained by me, impressed by me. I wanted to have a place of my own and to belong. When I'm performing, I feel unobtainable, like people can't reach me and my problems can't get to me. I can be quite shy in social situations. I don't like being looked at, but when I'm on stage, I want people to look at me to enjoy my performance. I feel so much safer performing than just being me. She also talks about her first kind of come to Jesus moment with a performer. She saw Kate Bush performing on Top of the Pops, and she was like, that... That's a show. So eventually her younger brother, Paul, is born. Her, Den, Paul, and her mother move into a semi-detached house. And things start getting more on the up and up for them. They enter a more working, lower middle class life. Yeah, so she had loved dance class, but she ended up not being able to go to dance classes because her mom couldn't afford any extras. And as things start to settle in, her mom says, do you want to start going to dance again? It's a resounding yes. She's so excited. She is obsessed with perfection. Bonjour, baby. Learning a second language in high school or college might have been one of the more stressful points in our academic careers. For me, it was at least. I have always wanted to be bilingual, but for some reason, not a single word I learned in high school and college language classes stuck inside of my brain. But now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that has sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there is an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. 
In high school, I wanted to take French so badly. And my parents said, Ashley, I don't want you to take French. And so I didn't. And now I never learned to speak French until now I have Babbel on my phone and I take 15 minute lessons and talk to myself while I walk my dog. It is so quick and easy and engaging. And I feel like, I don't know, catch me in Paris next summer because I will have a baguette in one arm and will be speaking French fluently with the other. Or at least conversationally. I'll cut myself some slack. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You'll learn how to have practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and more. I have already taught myself how to talk about my dog in French because I do think that's the most important thing for me. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts for having real conversations. Their teaching methods have been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use the promo code WORM. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code WORM. She was close with her cousins. Her grandpa once built them a little garden in the back and planted vegetables, blah, 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 blah. She talks about Paul being kind of a fragile little kid. If I was Paul, I would read this and be like, oh, my God, stop. (laughs) Don't say that about me. This book is boring because all the moments that she tries to say have like the significance and creating who she is. She's not effective at making them feel important. And so even if they're a big deal. You're still like, okay, well, that's what being alive is. Like, she talks about why Paul is kind of vulnerable in his own life. And she's like, well, once when he was seven, he was in a car accident. Nothing bad happened to him, but I'm sure it shook him up. And then she's like, and then pair that with the fact that once she saw a cat be killed with a BB gun, and no wonder he was fucked up as an adult. And I was like, I don't know, man. That's just fucking life in the 70s. That feels pretty par for the... If you get through life and you say, I had two bad moments. Once I was in a car accident where I ended up fine. And once somebody else killed a cat near me, you're okay. The thing is, all of this, I think if it had been tightened, could have had an impact. I think she could have said, you know, I didn't realize or appreciate mortality until we had this very scary moment where my brother got into a car accident. Like it could have been one sentence, but instead it's like seven pages where everyone was fine. Yeah, it's like seven pages of, so I was with my mom and then her friend looked nervous and then we got a call and then I went with her friend. Like It's just like, shut up, Melcy. I guess I do think she wants it to pack more of a punch than it is, but it is a story that just makes sense. It's a story you would have guessed. Okay. A little girl had divorced parents, worked really hard to try to make people like her. Being famous kind of sucks, and it made her depressed for a while. And now she's doing her best on her own. That's the story of Mel C. But unfortunately, we probably have another hour to go. Yeah. So she talks about high school or I don't know, secondary school, whatever you guys call that. She says she had loads of friends, but never quite felt like she fit in, which Claire is diagnosed as like she probably was invited to everything. There are those kids who you're like, everyone's friends with them, but like who are their best friends? And she does mention a couple people like Allie, Kathy, and Zoe. But I don't know. It doesn't ever feel like she has a real crew. I feel like she's somebody who she is a people pleaser. She is very good at keeping herself quiet and small and not fighting back. And I think she's easygoing. And I think she's sporty and good at dance and always did activities. And she grew up with all these brothers. I do think she's somebody who's good at fitting in and like not making a fuss or a stir. I don't know who she is specifically, and I don't know that she ever had like a best friend or truly close companions. All I really know about her is that she loves to dance and that she like likes grunge music more than you would expect a Spice Girl to. 
But even of the Spice Girls, I don't know which one was her good friend. She never really has a relationship. She doesn't have many people that are close to her. She talks about how her and her brother were so close growing up and they would do anything for each other. And I was like, I don't know that they were closer than any other siblings because there were like eight or nine years between them. So she goes on, I was always popular, but the reality was sometimes I was much happier in my bedroom by myself thinking my thoughts. I had many conflicting feelings as a young person and I spent a lot of time contemplating my life, my family, and my future where I fit into everything. This to me is a true introvert who performs. Like I do believe that's a thing, someone who's introverted, but also likes being on stage. People, I feel like don't understand that when you're on stage, it's actually like fairly solitary. It's not the same thing as socializing. But this is another one that I have a hard time with when it's written into memoirs, when people are like, you don't understand. When I was a teenager, I thought about things. I know. Lots of people do. God, then she tells this god-awful story that takes pages and pages about how her and her brother like to watch TV while they eat their meals. (laughs) (laughs) Like stuff like this. And then she's like, but my stepdad didn't like it. He would come home and we would run to the table. And I'm like, Melcy, you are so not extraordinary. (laughs) All this to say that Live Aid was a formative experience for her watching that performance and watching Bob Geldof and the idea that it takes one person truly believing in something to make a difference was very impactful for her. Seeing all these performances, seeing everyone come together to raise money. She thought like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a pop star. It's very interesting because she wasn't even singing at this point, but she recognized that being a pop star was being a dancer. And I actually do think that that's very intuitive for a little girl to understand because I think most children would have looked at Britney Spears and said, if I want to be Britney Spears or if I want to be Madonna, I want to grow up to be a singer. Yeah. She did not even start singing until high school, until she was in her teens, but she still thought she could do what they did because she was like, no, what they're doing is performing and entertaining. Yeah, she could really tell what performing was and she wanted to be a performer, not a singer. Of course, we did have to hear that analysis of Live Aid over nine pages. It's so funny because she's like, you don't understand. It had an impact on me. Anyway, 15% of the world tuned in. And I was like, I guess it had an impact on a lot of people. (laughs) She talks about getting into a full-on fight at school. She really stands up for herself. Someone said that her mom is a slag who sings in nightclubs. And so she just throws hands and goes crazy. After that fight on the bongs, which, what are the bongs? What's a slag? I've heard of a slag. No, I get it contextually, but. You know about cheeky slags? Just talk the way we talk, you goofs. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so this is what I mean about her, like, kind of intellectualizing a lot of these moments now that she's in therapy. So she becomes interested in being strong and being fit in this moment because she says, after this fight, I couldn't be caught off guard again. I needed to be a strong girl. It is also where she's like, you don't understand. I'm such a people pleaser. I never want to get into a fight. I try to be as quiet and as little as I can. However, if you speak to me, I am jacked and prepared to kill you. (laughs) I have been working on my uppercut. My body is a registered weapon. (laughs) As much as I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast, I knew I wasn't good enough. No, I decided it was dance. This is the first time she even mentions gymnastics. I wasn't a singer, though, at least not publicly yet. I loved to sing, but I didn't think I was any good. I was all right. I could hold a tune. I could sing a bit, but I didn't think I was a vocal talent. Even though I was just 15 years old, I had a lot of self-belief. I really thought all of this was my destiny. There was no plan B. There was nothing to fall back on. Having no backup plan, emotionally or literally, means that this thing, whatever this thing is, must work. She became a Spice Girl at 19. What do you mean you had no backup plan? When you're 14, you don't have a backup plan. You don't even have rent to pay. Like, 
as goofy as this all sounds, this I think is where I relate to her the most. Having this like unwavering belief that you can make it in a very impossible industry, but also being just like cripplingly insecure. I feel like I have this in a way where I'm like, I don't know how to rationalize it, but you know that I constantly am very insecure about a lot of things in my place in the world and like whether or not people like me. But then why am I pursuing stand-up comedy? You think we might be Spice Girls one day? (laughs) That is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The thing I was going to laugh about is when she was like, I did really good in school. I got four Bs and five Cs. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, I know everyone today thinks you need to have an A plus to be good at school. And I'm like, not an A plus, but surely at least one A. (laughs) She was a perfectionist. Let her get that perfect Cs average. I was 15 when I auditioned for dance school and 16 when I left home. That is crazy that in the UK you like just go. I don't understand you guys. I need somebody to... No, don't. Don't write in. (laughs) (laughs) If you write in explaining to us the British school system, this is the last UK memoir we'll ever do. (laughs) Oh my God. And then she goes into, I guess the sun was like very offensive in the covering of a Liverpool tragedy and caused a lot of problems. And she did an interview with The Sun and Liverpool was like, how dare you do an interview with our enemies? No one in Liverpool will even buy The Sun. It's like a huge deal. And so she like gives this long, heartfelt apology for having done an interview with The Sun. And she's like, mark my words, I will never talk to those mofos again. Anyway, so she auditions at three schools. The first one she gets into, but they're like, I guess these schools all start at different times. She's like, well, when that school started, I couldn't get down to London that month. So I had to say no. And then she auditions at Doreen Bird and gets in. And then she is going to audition at the Lane School. But because she's already in at Doreen Bird, she just doesn't even go to her audition. And if she had gone, guess who she would have been classmates with? One Victoria Adams, who is two Victoria Beckhams. (laughs) She does this funny thing in this book where she's like, man, and if things had been different, they would have ended up exactly the same. She doesn't say that, but she'll be like, could you imagine if I had gone to Lane? I would have known Victoria Beckham. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you guys met. (laughs) You know each other. (laughs) So she goes to Doreen Bird and she feels like they don't like her as much as they like the other people. It's a very small elite school and she feels like because she's from Liverpool, the North, which I guess is a bit trashier in their mind. She says that the teachers weren't nice to her and they didn't give her a lot of attention. I was still full of confidence, but I was never a favorite of the teachers, and I think that this knocked my belief in my abilities a little. Those three years that spent at Doreen Bird, I was frustrated because I really believed in my ability, and I didn't feel like I was given a fair crack of the whip. What did you think would happen if they had given you more attention? Do you think you would have gone on to global stardom as a Spice Girl? (laughs) So she talks about how her freshman year, she worked so hard, but because no one was nice to her, her sophomore year, she fucked around a little bit. And she says, I think if the teachers had encouraged me more, I might have buckled down more. But because I wasn't a favorite, my attention strayed, which is a shame. Who from Doreen Bird is more successful than you? Write that in, actually, too. I would love to know if there are bigger, not other notable Doreen Bird alum, but like who's bigger in the performing arts space than a Spice Girl? I will say, and I'm sure it's nice if you're one of the bands that gets named, but it's not nice if you're somebody who's trying to read this specifically quickly to go do a podcast. Any band she's ever heard of and liked, she lists in this book. And anytime she's ever met or talked to them, she'll just like do a quick aside to be like, you'll never believe. The midwife that delivered me was delivered by Paul McCartney's mom, who had been a midwife. (laughs) Okay. I feel like she's so people-pleasing in this that she tries to name everyone she can so that they can go, wow, Melcy's so nice. She wrote about me in her book. 
Mel, you got to like be a bit more cutthroat with your time and your page space. Oh my God. Anyone she's ever interacted with that died before this book was written. And she's like, anyway, we were walking down the street and there was this really great costume guard who unfortunately we we lost. <laughs> In 2016. <laughs> anyway, so after she graduates, she's auditioning all over town. She's living in an apartment with her performing arts friends and they're all just auditioning nonstop. None of them have any money. And all of her friends are getting little gigs here and there, and she is just getting callbacks. And it's been months, and all she's doing is auditioning really well. But it's been literally months. Like, if she graduated in June, she gets the Spice Girls in February. Yeah. So she goes seven months at 18 years old, not knowing what's in store for next before being part of, like, the largest girl group of all time. Yeah, and here's the thing about, like, the entertainment industry. I mean, she has Janice Dickinson disease where she's like, for six months, I tried and tried, and finally I was a global sensation. <laughs> so she's at an audition, and someone is giving out that ad from the stage for Are You 18 to 23 with the Ability to Sing slash Dance? Are You Streetwise Outgoing, Ambitious, and Dedicated? She goes, that's it, I exclaimed immediately. That's what I'm going to do. It sounds mad to say now, but as soon as I saw that audition notice, I knew I was going to get it. This is destined to be, I told Rachel, who laughed and said, well, go for it. So she goes to the audition. She meets Victoria Adams, who she could have been mates with three years sooner had they gone to the same dance academy. She gets a callback. Then she's so sick that she can't go to her callback. So her mom calls. She says, can she call back a different time? And they said, no. I told them you're sick, that you can't do the audition this week, and asked them to wait a few days. Melanie, I'm sorry. They said no, that they can't wait. So then they call her back, and they're like, actually, you can come later. The other person we picked instead of you didn't really work out. This is when the first band is grouped together. It's Jerry, Michelle, Victoria, Melanie, the other Melanie, and Melanie, this Melanie. And if you're saying, who's Michelle? Where is she now? Then you haven't listened to our other Spice Girls episodes. <laughs> Michelle was a rich bitch who did nothing but real tanning. Everyone else was always practicing and she was always out tanning. So basically what happens is they finalize these five girls and then they just say, you know, we're going to send you to a house that one of us owns for a week to see how you get on. They got on and then they're like, okay, now we're going to do like a longer house stay and you guys are going to become a band. There was some discussion over the fact that we hadn't chosen a lead singer. We had kept the vocals totally equal. It's just how we've done it, Melby shrugged, staring at Chris, Bob and Chick. I remember I was having a hard time with this name in somebody else's memoir as well. Is it Chick? Is it Chic? Is it Chic? I think it's Chick. Who was Chick? Chick was the financial backer of, of dubious background. And he had an empty house in Maidenhead that we could all live in. So they all go to Maidenhead. So they go to Maidenhead, the five of them, and that's where they're going to learn how to be a band. They all pick their rooms. Jerry gets the solo room. Sporty Spice gets the smallest bed. And she's like, this is where it began, me having no backbone. I also want to say Sporty Spice was brought in a few weeks late because they had already picked somebody else who they cut immediately. So like there was a sense like cuts were happening all the time. It was very much like Lindsay Lohan's Beach Club. Like you didn't know if it was a competition. Is it a game show? Is it a band? Is it a reality show? Is it an office, a professional workplace? As they're training and like writing these songs and becoming a band and learning to dance together, Michelle loves to just kind of leave in the middle of the day and go tan outside. And so then they had a talk with her and they're like, you can't do that. And then Bob and Chick had a talk with her and said, no, literally, you're fucking out of here. So then they bring in some young woman named Emma Bunton. You may know her as Baby Spice. And I guess she really was a baby. She showed up and she was wearing a baby doll dress knee-high socks. She had big eyes and pigtails that they call bunches in their country, which is like 
ew, why were you dressed like that? It's sick. And also I know she was obsessed with eating baby food, which I had assumed was an eating disorder thing because I think in the 90s they were like, if you want to weigh what a baby weighs, eat what a baby eats. (laughs) (laughs) But now I'm like, maybe she was just like really into the baby bit. Anyway, so Jerry kind of emerges as a leader. That's Ginger Spice. And by emerges as a leader, she means she's just like boss them around and had ideas. But also Mel B had ideas about how things should be. Jerry also clashed with Chris and Bob, but to be fair, she was often right. Even though she was only a year or two older than the rest of us, I always had the sense that Jerry was on borrowed time. Does that mean dying? When you're 24 and you're around people who are 21, they're going to look at you and say, you're a has-been. Yeah. You're the oldest, ugliest, most disgusting version of a human being, and it only gets worse from here, and nobody's been older than 24. And so when you're 24 trying to be a pop star, you're hustling because you have minutes. You have minutes before you just dry up and turn to dust. Do you ever find yourself trying your hardest to grocery shop to the fullest, but then before you can really enjoy your food, it is expired? Grocery shopping properly is not impossible, so Hungry Root is here to solve your meal planning and overshopping woes by combining meal planning and grocery shopping all in one. No more full trash cans, only full stomachs. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. What you do is you take a short and really fun quiz. Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat, your flavor favorites, which kitchen appliances you have. They'll keep your needs top of mind and start building out your meal plan. They'll recommend groceries based on your taste, and then they'll take those suggestions and give you the perfect recipes for the most delicious week of your life. Hungry Root follows a very simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole trusted ingredients. I'll tell you what, that's all I've ever wanted in a meal. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com worm to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know what we sent you. Anyway, so they're all bopping around. They're learning how to be a pop group. They end up spending like a year in Maidenhead, I think. Yeah, just working. It sounds like they had a really good dynamic. It took the whole team. Everybody had something special. I'm not a go-getter or a networker like some of the other girls, but I was really happy on stage and in the studio. Give me a microphone and I'll happily take the lead. Emma was also confident in her abilities and was the backbone of the band in many ways. She was the baby. She was a baby. (laughs) I'm a truther. I'm a baby truther. (laughs) A baby was a baby the whole time. She's still a baby today. But she also held us together. She's a lot tougher than you think. Victoria was another good calming force and always had a good sense for business. I always wish she was more confident as a performer. She's so much better than she thinks or allows people to believe. Jerry and Mel B from day one were both very, very determined to succeed, as we all were, but those two had an extra bit of steel inside of them. Their personalities ensured that this band would be a success, whatever it took. So she's like, we needed all of us. I will say something funny about every single memoir we've read is they're all like, poor Victoria, I thought she wasn't very good, but she's better than she thought. But then they're all like, but you know who sucked at everything? Jerry. Like she couldn't dance and she couldn't sing, but boy, was she bossy. Boy, was she bossy and boy, did she give everybody an eating disorder. Literally. But do you know who else gave people eating disorders was Chick, the money behind the business. He said, I'm going to profit off this thing. And in order to profit, I'm going to need skinny girls. One day at a pool party, Sporty Spice does a backflip and he says, I'm surprised you can do backflips with thighs like that. Everyone is caught off guard. Everyone freezes. No one knows what to do. And Jerry later comes to Mel C and she goes, I like to go running in the mornings. 
do you want to come? It turns out Jerry was in the midst of a raging eating disorder that no one knew about. And all they're really doing all day is just doing these little dance steps. And so Mel says after going for a run, she feels refreshed, the endorphins. She's like, this is what I've been missing. And she becomes very into exercise, but not in an unhealthy way yet. I didn't drastically change my eating at that point, but I started going to the gym and began to be more conscious of what I was eating. I cut back on crisps, that's chips, and started to think about the calories in each glass of wine. It wasn't a problem, at least not yet. Many of us were going through similar things at that time, not least because the wider cultural message we were receiving about the aesthetic of fitness. Let's face it, pop stars at the time were all slim, if not skinny, all of them, actors and models too. I know that as a band, we further promoted this image, but we didn't know any different. In order to make it in that industry, it's very difficult to have a body type that isn't the standard that they are perpetuating. And so if you want to put your foot down and say, like, I will be successful and I will not conform to your shit, that is an enormous risk that a lot of people who just want to make it at any cost are not going to take. Yeah. Also, I do think right now, one, there's so many discussions that are being had. There's like a larger social understanding. And then two, there's social media. It was so gatekeepy back then. Back then, one man named Chick had a house that you would move into and he would tell you if your thighs were okay to be a superstar. Yeah. That's just not how it goes. So they're working on this stuff and things are coming together. They're doing the songs that Chick and the lot are telling them to do and they're telling them how to dress and the girls keep pushing back. But it does seem like it's coalescing into something and they can't tell what it is. But the men are being really mean to them. They keep like not complimenting them, not giving them contracts. And it was made to like instill this fear that they could better keep your shit together. You could get cut at any moment. But it ends up backfiring on our old chicky boo. Big time. So they keep on saying, we're preparing for an industry showcase. We're going to launch you to the industry. We're going to launch you to the industry. And finally, they say, fucking when? Finally, they put together this showcase. And at the showcase, the girls are able to network a little bit. They're able to show off their stuff. They're not doing the songs that they think are great, but they meet a handful of writers, producers, and other industry professionals who they start working with kind of on the sly. They start putting together some songs and they get a demo tape together with Bob, Chick, and Chris that they end up going full Scooby gang and stealing from their offices, leaving them in the dust and saying, do you know what? This contract, rip it in half, baby, because we're not signing shit. We don't like you and we're going to find somebody else. It reminds me of the Britney Spears story and that one of the big criticisms that were launched against the Spice Girls is they were this machine-made group, but everything great about them, they pushed back on. They were supposed to be called Touch. Jerry came up with Spice and she's like, there's five of us. We're all different spices. We're Spice. And that was much better. They insisted on writing their own songs about writing things that were really important to them. Friendship, baby, never ends. Girl power. And then also, they wanted all the girls to look the same. Like, they were trying to do what had always worked for girl groups before. And they just kept pushing back and saying, no, what's special about us is that we're all unique. And we're all so different that you could not put any two of us in the same outfit. Like, you couldn't put them all in tracksuits. That would be crazy. You couldn't put them all in sexy little dresses. That would be crazy. You couldn't put them all in red hair. So everything that pops off about them came from their own little brain. Even when it came down to put out their debut single, the record label was obsessed with putting To Become One out as their debut single. And they said it has to be Wannabe. Like it has to be Wannabe. And if it hadn't been Wannabe, Spice who? And this is my favorite part. Honestly, I got a little teary-eyed. I think because I'm so exhausted from traveling. But they would use all five as an attack where Jerry would go in and be like, where is the CEO? And then Victoria would be so nice to the receptionist. And then Emma would be like picking things up. And then Mel B would be like snooping through cabinets. And then what's this one called? The forgettable one would be like. <laughs> <laughs> She'd be dribbling a basketball in the corner. 
But she talks about how they would just like bang into these rooms. She'd be doing a backflip. They'd be jumping on the tables. Victoria would be putting all the chairs back where they belonged. Emma would be apologizing and being so polite. And like between the five of them, there was just this whirlwind and they were selling themselves and they weren't even selling the music, but they knew that they had something impressive. The five pronged attack was deeply charming and it worked big time, baby. So they write all these songs. They start getting some real shit together. They go to a studio in Shoreditch to record some stuff. We know Shoreditch. We went there last week. (laughs) Heard of it. So now they're looking for a manager and they go to a bunch of meetings and it sucks because these men are such friggin' assholes. She gives like eight pages of credit to a band called Shampoo for making a song called Girl Power before the Spice Girls ever started saying it. And I think that it's because everyone credits the Spice Girls for inventing Girl Power. I think they've gotten flack for it. And she's like very apologetic. We weren't the only people thinking about girl power and feminism. There were a lot of great female bands around at that time, too, with the Riot Girl movement in America, led by Bikini Kill and Sleater Kinney. fucking God, Mel C., there is a lot of literature dedicated to the history of the Riot Girl movement. It does not need to be in a Spice Girl memoir. I know Spice is in a PhD in feminism, but we were saying what so many other young people felt. I guess here's what's crazy to me, and I think you see it in all branches of expensive stuff. That's movies, that's music, that's all of it is that these executives are like, we want an authentic girl's experience. So what we're going to do is we're going to take Randy here, who's 48 <laughs> years old and dates 20-year-olds, and we're going to ask him what he thinks his girlfriend's like. <laughs> they just ask one girl one time, what do you like? And that's a pop-off sensation. Remember when Britney Spears was like, why don't we just wear what my friends wear? And it created a lifelong... A lifelong movement. Okay, and here's some big news. Here's some tea, piping hot. I can't remember exactly how Zigga Zig Ah came about, but in the song, it means sex. So if you're wondering, like, what Zigga Zig Ah, what do they mean by that? They mean... If you really, really, really want to fuck. <laughs> oh, my God. So true. I guess, you know, if I'd really put my brain to it, I could have figured that out. Me too. Songwriting was a very collaborative process for us. Jerry and I were working together a lot. We were real doers. Jerry has a million ideas a minute. In those early days at Bon Hill Road... She went to night school to study English literature. She was and is a writer. She would come up with an idea, but wasn't always sure how to make it work rhythmically or musically, which is where Emma and I would come in. Melodically, myself and Emma were confident at thinking about top lines and choruses. Mel B would always inject something cool or quirky. Victoria was musical. She knew instinctively how to write songs. But I know she has spoken on various occasions about how she felt that she lacked the confidence we all seem to have. Yeah, it's because you just said that she had no part in it. So they're putting together more music. They're really throwing down tracks. They're meeting with managers to try and get their foot in the door in the industry. And they wonder if leaving that management team that was mean to them and sucked was a mistake because now they're out here just kind of flailing. Luckily, they are able to get meetings because of that industry showcase. And they meet Simon Fuller. But not before they're turned down by Simon Cowell. Here's the way memory will trick you. Simon Cowell remembers saying yes to the girls but being turned down by them. The girls remember being turned down by Simon Cowell. Who's right? Supposedly, Simon Cowell said, I don't think you've got what it takes, which turned out to not be that far off. They did have what it takes to make it, but they did not have what it took to stay in it. So they find Simon Fuller. This is where we diverged from previous stories. Mel C. was not sold on Simon Fuller. She was always a bit suspicious of the fella. And in the other ones we've read, they've said that they were immediately gung-ho on Simon Fuller. Everyone was like, this is it. This is the guy. No question about it. And it wasn't until later that they were like, have we made a huge mistake? 
Sometimes we turn up to a meeting, bickering about God knows what. The door would open and boom, we were all smiles, sugar and spice and all things nice. Hello, we're spice. We'd press play on the tape and off we went. So then Simon does the famous bidding war. If you want to know more about this, I think listen to our other Spice Girls episodes. They were going around to all the record labels. Everyone wanted them. Everyone was like sweetening the pot, taking them out to nice dinners, getting them limousines, blah, blah, blah. They go with Virgin Records. They had always wanted to go with Virgin Records, but they let the bidding war go on so that they could get more money. And then something they did that was absolutely unhinged. These were girls who like a year before had nothing and were just working at a house in Maidenhead to fuck with Virgin. They were supposed to tell them by 5 p.m. if they were saying yes or not. And they sent a limousine of five blow-up dolls with wigs that made them look like the Spice Girls to like mess with their heads. I understand like playing a little bit hard to get, but sign the fucking papers. Something I still don't understand about how the music industry used to work is the way that you would bid on women who hadn't put out an album yet. Yeah. Like that to me is so the opposite of everything we've ever experienced where people are like, okay, well, you've proved you can make X. So what if we paid you X minus 10 to keep doing it? But for us. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I had to prove more than what I've already done for you. Yeah. I will say Melanie is also a lot more honest about the level of bickering that happened. Every other book we've read has been very like, we fought, but it was all love. There was nothing wrong here. Everyone was happy. You know, we had our little squabbles, but it was no big deal. And in this book, Mel's like, no, we would flip the fuck out at each other. She talks about one night, a fist did fly that may well have been mine. And I think it caught poor Jerry as well as its intended target, Mel B, who thought she was bleeding, but it turned out there was just wine pouring down her face. What the fuck? I know the way that Sporty Spice is like, I was always the peacemaker. I was just kept quiet. I was never in the middle of things. I just wanted to patch everything up. I did punch a girl once. And I'm like, that's wild. Even me and Ashley in all our years of fighting. Fist cuffs. <laughs> me, oh my. <laughs> there were parts about this book and the way that Sporty tells the story of their come up that I really enjoyed and felt emotional about and found very reasonable and level-headed and almost as if it was more a biographer than an autobiography. Yes. And I think here's why. Jerry and Victoria, they both wrote their memoirs immediately after the Spice Girls. Like years coming out of it, right? Yeah. And then Mel B, of course, her book was more about her later years and her bad relationships. She did write a memoir first called To Catch Fire or something. And that was about the Spice Girls, but we didn't read that one. And so I think the other two were so close to the situation. And this one I felt did have the maturity and perspective of years past. She is such like a side character in her own life that the way she talks about the group really is like she's telling the group's story as opposed to her own personal story. But she's very reasonable. She talks about what she loved. And she says, the other thing the girls taught me is how to ask questions. If you don't understand something, ask. If you don't know what a word means, ask. You're not stupid if you don't know something. You're stupid if you don't find out what it means because you've missed the opportunity to learn something. With the backing of the girls, I had confidence not only to say, but to know I belonged anywhere and everywhere. I mean, I do think they all did a really good job of showing the sisterhood I honestly think it comes across a little bit less in Mel C's book. I know, but I felt it was more reasonable. Not that it comes across powerfully, but it did feel more even keeled. And it felt like she's telling the group's story because she has no horse in any race. I can't explain it, but she is not the protagonist of this book. I did not realize how much I shed until I started wearing glasses around my apartment and seeing how much hair has just been cast astray in every direction Maybe stress is causing my hair to thin, or maybe it's the other way around. Nutrafol knows that to address any of these problems, you have to address all of them. Their whole body wellness approach with their medical grade supplements can help you feel better and look better in that order. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement for women, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, visible thickness, and visible scalp coverage. From postpartum to menopause, no matter the root cause, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. 
Each is physician-formulated using natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients so you get the most reliable results. Go to Nutrafol.com to take their hair health wellness quiz, identify causes of your thinning hair, and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair growth through whole body wellness. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 3,500 healthcare professionals recommended Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code WORM. One thing that I found really interesting and really cute, I mean, we heard about this, that all of the Spice parents and siblings are all very close. And she says, like, no, her mom will keep in touch with people better than Mel will keep in touch with people. She says her mom talks to the Adams family more than Mel talks to any of the other girls. It really is sweet that they had this moment in time. That, I mean, these parents must have been like, I don't know, my 18-year-old girl said she was going to become a pop star and she friggin' did it. And now we're here to, like, cheer her on. It's very cute. Yeah, she also talks very frankly about how difficult it is to suddenly come into money. And she says all the girls, even though Victoria gets flack for being posh spice, she was like, she was upper working class. Her dad had a BMW or something, but it was like bought used. Yeah. And she talks about suddenly having enough money to help everyone, but then also the demand that comes with helping everyone a few times. I was suddenly able to provide new homes, holidays, and cars. The guilt drives you to splash out on everyone, but the cash doesn't necessarily keep rolling in like that forever, and it's hard to do an about turn on generosity. I also had a feeling of unworthiness. Who am I to have all this cash? Am I really that special? Do I deserve this success? Quite soon, though, the silly little arguments started to become a bit more serious. As the pressure piled on, we all started to feel it, some of us more than others. Sporty, scary, baby, posh, and ginger were ready to take on the world, and take on the world we did, one song at a time. So they get invited to the Brit Awards, and this is still before they have an album out or even a single out. So they're there kind of anonymously, but like with a lot of industry buzz because everyone knew that they had this like massive bidding war around them. Michael Jackson does a performance, and at the end, Michael Oblivious was lowered back to the stage where he took off his shirt and trousers, his actual trousers, to stand, all in white like Jesus on the cross as little kids took it in turns to hug him. We all looked at each other like bonkers. That is bonkers. So they're at the Brit Awards and they have this weird argument. I don't know that we've read about it in another book and it is really confusing. She says, we had always been and remain very protective of each other, but it felt like things started to shift as we became more and more aware that we had something very precious. The band had the potential to be huge and none of us were allowed to fuck that up. So rules very slowly started to appear. But the problem was that the rules, as they were being created, shifted slightly person to person. I started to feel ever so slightly monitored by some in the band and by management. So they're walking down the street, they're leaving the award show, and she wants to take out her ponytail. And I guess that there was a bit of an argument because they were like, you're Sporty Spice, you have to have a ponytail. And Victoria says something to her, like, you had to keep your ponytail in. So she says, oh, fuck off. And that's all she remembers happening. But the next day, everyone in the house was like, the way you spoke to Victoria last night was disgusting. Something really fucked up happened. And she's like, we always talk to each other like that. All I said was, oh, fuck off. And I don't know what really happened. Yeah. And then Simon sat her down and says, this can't happen again. If it does, you'll be out. This band must be built on trust and respect. And if you're not delivering that, it puts the whole group at risk. Do you understand? And so I guess my question is this. What happened? What really happened? And how big of a deal was this? It seems like they were all getting in trouble all the time. I think Simon was like giving them all a hard time. It sounds like they were all giving each other a hard time. 
I do wonder if they were harder on her or if that she took it harder than everybody else. I wonder if they were harder on her or if she honestly maybe got in trouble less. And so when she did, it felt... I think that that's kind of what it is. Yeah, because she seems like a bit of a goody two-shoes people pleaser, like always trying to do the right thing. An awful lot changed that day. For one, I was devastated because I saw this dream that I had since I was a kid could be taken from me in the blink of an eye for something I'd done. For something, in fact, I barely remembered doing. From that moment on, I became hyper aware that there must be no outbursts, no arguments, no fighting back. The girl who stood up to bullies at school, the girl who started to fade into the background, she disappeared into thin air that night following the Brits. I mean, yeah, that checks out. Alongside Chick's fat shaming comment a year earlier, I don't know if there's ever been anything before or since that has shocked me more. The way the girl spoke to me was a million times worse than what I'd said under my breath, drunk to Victoria. Okay, these are just women in their early 20s. They're all kind of being a bitch to each other. Maybe because it was so shocking and out of character for Mel C. They were like, that was way out of line. We have to talk to her. But I think that all these girls were probably being spoken to all the time. Like they were all ganging up on each other constantly. But Mel C just took the hardest. And I do think if you are the kind of person who tries your hardest to be a people pleaser, it's like that much more upsetting when you don't please the people. To her, like this moment stands out where they probably sat down Jerry and talked to her like a hundred times. Jerry and Mel B would have all out screaming matches where they would stop talking to each other for weeks on end. I'm sure Simon was sitting them down constantly, but I think it was less important to them to follow Simon's rules and follow each other's rules, whereas she really did believe that they could kick her out of the band. I don't think other people had that same fear. So in response, she becomes obsessed with controlling what she eats and what she weighs. I turned into a robot, a robot who would stop at nothing to deliver excellence and embody perfection, a robot who no longer expressed emotions, thoughts, or ideas. I just went along with it, all of it, pretty much, and focused solely on making myself the best dancer, singer, performer, and pop star that I could possibly be. I don't think any of the other girls were saying, I will do whatever it takes to make it work. I'm never going to say an opinion. I'm never going to say anything that upsets anybody. But if you do have that mindset and then somebody still gets upset with you, you're like crushed. Whereas I think people like Jerry and Mel B are more used to getting in trouble. Yeah. So they release Wannabe. The world goes crazy. You can feel the earth shake. Everyone loses their damn minds. They get to perform on top of the pops. And she says that they had just gotten off a 16-hour flight, got back to the hotel, like did a quick refresh and had to go do their first performance on top of the pops, which is a full circle moment for her because that was the first moment where she was ever just entranced by a performance. Can you fathom yesterday if we had gotten off our seven-hour flight with one hour on the tarmac and had to do anything? Dude, recording this podcast a full 24 hours later, I'm over here in between takes like groveling on the floor. I'm like, please, Ashley, let me sleep. (laughs) Almost overnight, they had a fan base, but not quite overnight because after Wannabe comes out, she goes to the mall and no one recognizes her. I do think the other ones were probably recognizable. Interestingly enough, they were huge on top of the pops. It was like MTV for them. And they had this video for Wannabe that was done in one take. And Mel B's nipples were out. And it was fun. And it was like chaotic, just like they were. Everybody said it was a bad idea. It would never work. The label actually wanted them to re-record it. They said it was a bomb. And it stayed at number one for like 13 weeks. But the radio was not so keen on playing them. It took them a while to win over the radio. But yet, you know, they persevered and they did it. They did it. So she moves in with Mel B. And pretty quickly, her and Mel B have this weird kind of falling out where Mel B just stops talking to her, but they're living together. And she'll like get her flowers and try to get her tea. And Mel B just kind of ignores her for a while. She says since then, Mel B has come to her and been like, I was in a bad place at the time. I'm sorry, I was such a bitch. Anyone who's ever wronged her, she'll write about it. But then she'll write another five pages being like, and they have profusely apologized to me. So we're not mad anymore. Call off your dogs. (laughs) I can't imagine getting up in arms on behalf of Mel C. I'm so sorry. She just does not bring out in me a protective sense. 
She also says, Jerry also found the performance side difficult. In fact, she and I had a close relationship because I was the most willing to help her with the choreography and vocals. Mel B would get frustrated with Jerry because she wasn't always very patient, which you can see in the unofficial online documentary called Raw Spice. She also has that moment. I guess this was a pretty universal girl group moment where the first time they realized how fucking famous they were was when they went to turn on the Oxford Street Christmas lights and thousands and thousands of people came out for the Spice Girls specifically. And they were like, holy shit, we're famous. We're more famous than Christmas. So Simon is able to sort of build into them this implicit fear along with their success. He convinced them that they would be followed everywhere. Simon made us doubly paranoid about anyone seeing us doing anything ever. So like he knew that they were going to be followed and he really built that in as a bad thing. And of course, it is scary to be followed by paparazzi. But he was like, if they ever catch you doing anything, that's bad. If they find out you have a boyfriend, if they find out you do this, if they find out you do that. So they just like lived in this intense state of paranoia because even the normal things they were afraid to be caught doing. And on top of that, the media was ripping them apart. I think they all got it pretty bad, but I think Sporty was also the least favorite. And she says they would often turn them against each other and have polls and be like, who's the hottest? Who's the prettiest? Who's the most popular? And she doesn't say who won, but it kind of seems like she lost. It seems like not her. She says that they had a lot of really mean nicknames for her. I started to become obsessed with what was being said about me and what people thought about me and how I looked in photos. I was already on the edge of an eating disorder and constantly being written about and photographed fed right into that. The more pictures I saw of myself, the more determined I was to stay, quote, fit and healthy. But I was becoming incredibly thin. They would call her things like beefy spice. Sumo spice. Like, when was she anything other than 100 pounds? It began to breed a few issues within the band. Initially, Mel B and Jerry were written about the most, but then Victoria met a new guy and boom, a new tabloid sensation was born. A new guy. Take any five young people and pit them against each other in what amounts to a popularity contest and it's going to cause problems. It just is. I will say she almost never references Emma B in this book. Emma B is left out the most and she's always talking about the other three. Even just there, where was Emma in all this? She at one point talks about how they were all kind of the favorite in different countries and says Emma had the UK which I think is very interesting. So she talks about when we meet this footballer. She says it was Simon's doing. Like, I know Simon brought Victoria up to the Manchester game, but I didn't know that he specifically, like, aimed her at David Beckham and said, well, wind her up and shoot. I think he wanted to fuck David Beckham as well. So it was, like, the closest he could get. Okay. So Victoria met David Beckham. Of course, Simon said you had to keep it a secret. So they supported their kind of secret little love affair. Until, of course, it wasn't a secret anymore. We liked him because he was quiet and he didn't get involved. He didn't interfere. He was always very sweet and he was very shy back then. David quickly became one of the girls. That's sweet. For all us girls, 1997 to 1998 is a blur. We didn't stop to take it all in because we just didn't have the time. Between January and February of 97, we flew to 10 different countries that I remember. We were in departures so often that even the customs officers couldn't believe how much we traveled. I can't believe they still have to go through customs. They're pop stars. Hello, Spice Cadets. Have you heard of Dipsy? Because they have all types of oral pleasure to explore. Oral like your ears, not wherever your mind just went. But actually, they have that too, in a way. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, vacation flings, hot and heavy hookups, anything your heart desires, or not your heart. With new stories released every single week, in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something brand new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax, unwind, or 
heat things up with a partner. I will tell you what, I am starting to really know who my favorite Dipsy voicers are. And uh, we have gotten to know each other, me and these story readers. There is not a lot on this planet that is sexier than finding just a truly sexy voice to read you your favorite tale at night. For listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash worm. Dipsystories.com slash worm. So later she gets into their weird little feud with Liam Gallagher, which you know is one of my favorite moments in pop culture history that I don't remember. They get nominated for a bunch of Brits one year after being at the Brits as this recently signed buzzy, interesting girl group. They are nominated for five awards. They're opening the show. Liam Gallagher says that he was snubbing the show because if he bumped into the Spice Girls, I'd chin him. Okay, I have another pop culture weird tea fact here. Sure. They talk about meeting Elton John backstage and they say he has a bespoke green room. And I was like, oh, okay. He probably has like fancy M&Ms. No. His green room is a small cabin surrounded by AstroTurf and a white picket fence. That is bespoke. That's insane. I love that for him. You're only back there for a few hours. The Brits are one night. How do you know he didn't live there for a bit? (laughs) Because I'm sure he had a bespoke green room somewhere else. I think that's too much to ask. Anyway, I guess Liam, when accepting an award the previous year, had said, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And so this year, when they got on stage to accept an award, people pleaser Mel C said, I just want to say, Liam, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And years later, they met and joked about it, and it's all fun and games. She forgives everybody. By this point, I was incredibly slim. With all the travel, rehearsal, performances, and flying across numerous time zones, it was a punishing time on our bodies. I continued with my relentless low-calorie diet. The day after the Brits, I was back to my routine. A 10-kilometer run, two-hour workouts, and very little fuel. That's a lot. That's really a lot. She also talks about not really developing a life outside of the band. Like, everyone else is dating. Everyone else sees family, she says. I felt dehumanized by my own restrictions and the ones put on me. I shouldn't have a boyfriend. I shouldn't speak too much in interviews. I shouldn't speak up too much at all. She's becoming just more and more insecure with every day, with every moment. And then meanwhile, she gets a call from her dad and he says, remember when you wanted a sister? And she says, oh, Carol's pregnant. And he goes, no, I had a daughter many years ago and the mom said, leave me alone. And now that they know you're a Spice Girl, they want back in our lives. They meet for the first time in front of the tabloids. And she's like, looking back, we probably shouldn't have trusted the journalists to take photos of us for like meeting. They decide to do a movie. You guys know how it goes. After their first album comes out and is a smash success and they're flying all over the world promoting it, they jump right into making Spice World along with their second album, Spice World. It is insane. They're working with writers. I guess writers would just be sitting in trailers and production teams in case the Spice Girls had a few moments to run out to the trailer and work on the album. It sounds awful. Like, they did not get a fucking day's break. We were also a bit more diva-ish at that point, if I'm being very honest. We got shouted at quite often by Simon and 19 because we were all too busy ordering expensive clothes and cars. And so our focus wasn't what it had been on the first album. That's not true. When you're shooting an entire movie in six weeks and writing a whole album and you've done international tours, they would have like two shows in a row in Stockholm had to go back to London to promote something. I had to go to like Poland the next day. Their schedule was insane. If they wanted to take 10 minutes to buy something, it wasn't that they had lost focus. It's just that they had lost any free time. 
I was possibly my thinnest when we shot it in the summer of 1998. I was so small. I was still living in my rented flat in Finchley. Because I was there alone, I had more freedom to restrict my diet without anyone seeing what I was doing. It remained vital to me that I was able to get to the gym no matter what I had to do that day. I was, in all honesty, frightened to break that routine. The album managed to sell 14 million copies, so we didn't do too bad, all things considered, but it did sell less than the first. Who knows? If we had been given time out, we could have lost some momentum. But also, maybe we would have had the same songs, but had more time and energy to execute things better and take things even further. Maybe Jerry wouldn't have left. Maybe I wouldn't have also ended up being desperate to escape too. We'll never know. You can't argue with this, though. Spice World, the movie, was released in December 1997 and remains the highest grossing film of all time by a musical group. I would never dispute that. On one hand, we were in this idyllic mansion living a fairy tale life, but individually, we were all unhappy. So she talks about how they all were very independent from each other at this point. Simon was kind of playing them against each other. They would just kind of arrive and move around each other, but not really talking. They were not a group anymore. They'd all really started to drift. And Simon is just pumping them for all they're worth. We needed some space and some rest, but we weren't getting that. We were on an impossible schedule and we were starting to feel like cash machines. Sure, we were making money, although not as much as Virgin and 19 were making, but it was our faces all over the stuff, not theirs. And we could tell that we were reaching a point of oversaturation. We were everywhere on everything. If I was fed up with seeing us, surely everyone else was too. We were all feeling bullied, bossed about, and undermined. There were a lot of things going on that I was very uncomfortable about, but no one voiced anything. While we weren't entirely impenetrable before Simon came along, after his arrival, the cracks between us started to widen. As I mentioned before, he implemented this divide and rule style of management. One rule for one person, a different rule for another. So I guess Jerry and Mel B had sat down and been like, we've got to figure out something about Simon, but they didn't talk to the rest of the group yet. One of the things he did that Mel C was very upset about was it was suggested that I was too vulnerable to have boyfriends, but Mel B could have as many as she wanted. Victoria's parents weren't allowed to come backstage at the Prince Trust because Simon was a huge football fan. He had the red carpet out for David's mom and dad. Emma could do what she wanted. Jerry was told she had to quiet down. I will say with the Emma and Jerry thing, I'm like, I do think Jerry was more likely to be loud and crazy, whereas Emma seems like she was just goo-goo-gagaing. She was a baby. <laughs> she was a baby. So then she opens up about the night before their first big show in Turkey. We've heard about the show that they'd been training for in Istanbul. She got a massage the night before the show, and she was sexually assaulted at this massage. And she hasn't really talked about it before. She told someone right away. And I guess they said they were unable to find the guy. Maybe he was a rando. Basically, she went down and he was like, oh, yeah, get naked. And she had to lay there naked. And when she felt his boner, she was like, oh, my God, and got out of there. It sounds just awful. They met Prince Harry. If you guys remember from his memoir, when he went to South Africa, they met Nelson Mandela and Prince Harry and Prince Charles at the same time. And she was like, Prince Harry is stuck along so that he could meet Baby, probably his favorite Spice Girl. And I was like, no, 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 he's stuck along so he could meet his own dad. Yeah, it's crazy that this is like the fifth memoir that we read this in. And yeah, Prince Harry wasn't trying to meet the Spice Girls. This was his first public outing after Princess Diana had passed and he was trying to connect with his own dad. So at the MTV Europe Music Awards in Rotterdam in 1997, the Spice Girls decided that they were done with Simon. They had all finally come up with this plan. Jerry, Victoria, and Mel B were all like, we have to get him out of our hair. He is ruining this group. And they were nervous to tell Emma and Mel C because I guess Emma and Mel C were seen more as the ones who were going along with whatever they were told by an adult. But they bring Sporty in. Mel C's like, hell yeah, I'm in, bitches. And they're so relieved. She says, I didn't get into this to advertise fucking chocolate bars. I want to be on stage. I want to perform. Let's fucking do it. The thing about Mel C is she's kind of rock and roll. Yeah. 
but like quietly. Yeah. She like isn't about the money. She isn't about the press, but she loves to perform, which is ironic because I think the rest of them are like not great performers. So they broke out of that contract. They had his lawyers call them and she doesn't go into as much detail, but we know from the other books that everything was pulled. They didn't have a team. They didn't have security. Jerry again went and like stole in her bag the file of facts so they could have the phone numbers that they still needed. We'd had enough of men controlling us and telling us what we should do or say where, telling us we could or couldn't date. And at this point, I was like, who would she have even dated? So apparently she'd had a little bit of a flirtation with Robbie Williams, the pop star man. She says this up like this was her main boyfriend. They went on like five dates. Okay, but I think it meant a lot to her because she talks about feeling very insecure because the other girls all had boys all the time. I mean, it was one of her childhood crushes and she felt very special getting attention from Robbie Williams. And it turns out that is what it was. I was hurt and humiliated because it was someone that I admired and he pursued me and then treated me badly. And then she did another guy. And there's this woman named Caprice, who I only know from Bravo's Ladies of London, who I guess was an American who was kind of like an Anna Nicole Smith of London, I think. She was like a hot model. And I guess she had gone in an interview and said she had a crush on this guy, Jay. And Mel breaks up with him because she's like, well, if this hot model likes you, you'll never be with me. But they were already together. I saw it as this hot woman fancies my boyfriend, so I should probably give up now. I'd never seen it like this lucky guy who was admired by many is dating a Spice Girl. That is crazy to be like, somebody else thinks you're hot. Well, bye. Between 1997 and 2001, my eating disorder was particularly bad. Maybe if I'd met the right person who could have supported me through it, things might have been different. But I didn't feel confident enough to be honest with someone. I don't really love that line of thinking. You saw how the boyfriends were going. They probably only made it worse. The icing on the cake, the thing that really kicked me when I was down was the press who loved to tell me who I was. Single spice, plain spice, beefy spice, sumo spice. She's like, listen, if you were in your 20s, you probably wouldn't want to be called plain, right? I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) They also called her a lesbian all the time. And she's like, that was so fucked up, not to me, but to the gay community because they said it like an insult. And I'm like, Hillary Duff, PSA, who? This is the message. So now it's 1998 and Jerry has been threatening that she's going to leave the band for a while. They're working with sort of like a pseudo manager. They're getting by on a giant world tour. They don't really have any time to stop and think. And every time they get into a fight, Jerry's like, I'm out. But then they just like keep doing more stuff. Being on tour is tough. You're performing until 10 or 11 at night and then you drive to the next city, get up early for a flight, get to the next venue, soundtrack, play a show until late that night. It wears everyone down, even me. We were burnt out, overworked, and overwhelmed. <laughs> Sister, I hear <laughs> <This> you. <laughs> we are just like the Spice Girls. So Jerry and Mel B specifically are really kind of scrapping. It often felt like a battle to lead the band, but neither of them seemed to be winning. One day, Jerry is just like, I'm actually out. And they were like, okay, Jerry, I'll be back. And she wasn't. And they didn't know what to do. And they kept calling her and begging her to come back. What had happened to us wouldn't have happened without Jerry. She was absolutely determined to make the band work from day one. I mean, we all were, but she had a sense of urgency. It was as though she was on borrowed time. Jerry was very much the driving force of the success of the Spice Girls. So they have to figure out how to just refigure the band and keep going on their tour because they have this huge tour sold. They have a sold out tour in America and they're like, what are we going to do? Is this a breach of contract? And she's like, shockingly, the promoters would have us as just a 4-0. And I was like, yeah, you've sold like 1 million tickets. <laughs> I think they, they're not going to be like, well, we'll give her when their money back. Anyway, so Jerry leaves. They're kind of freaking out, especially because they had just left Simon. The press was having a field day with the downfall of the Spice Girls. In the aftermath of Jerry's departure, there was a lot to sort out. They finish out the tour. Then it turns out both Mel B and Victoria Beckham are pregnant. So things are on uncertain ground. She's like, okay, we've got no Jerry. 
Mel B and Victoria are going to need some time off right now. I guess the band is over. And it's like, what is Emma doing? This is when it's so weird because I know what every Spice Girl is doing except for Emma. She yes. really, I like, what was Emma up to? A lot of people around me were telling me I had the best shot at a solo career. Who was saying this? The people around her. It turned out the moment might be coming sooner than I thought. She decided this is as good a time as any to put out a solo album. She works really hard on it. And it sounds like it does really well in the UK and Europe. I will give her that. It does seem like there are a lot of bands that have been like hugely famous in the world that we never really found out about in America. And it's very possible to me that her first album was like a thing. So she had this chance at a solo career. And then she starts getting into how she hadn't been allowed to talk in interviews. And she's like, no one explicitly told me not to talk. They'd say things like, Melanie, don't feel under pressure to say too much in interviews because sometimes what you say, well, it doesn't come across very well. We've all said silly things in interviews, Jerry and Mel B more than anyone. None of us were media trained, but we did instinctively have this ability to get our message across. After many years of therapy, I can rationalize a lot of what happened back then. We were young, we were all vulnerable and insecure. We all had our issues. I believe some of the band were threatened by me and wanted to keep me in my place. I think she was just like getting caught in the wake of people's bad emotions. Yeah. She talks about, she's like, imagine how much fun it would be to go on a work trip with five of your friends. Now imagine that work trip for two years, you're never allowed to see your family. And like the press is criticizing everything you do. You'd probably be less stoked. It was five strangers who randomly just started living together full time and building a business. She says, the girls all trust me up there. It's where we work best. Whenever we sing acapella, all eyes are on me. The girls look to me on stage if they question themselves. Finally, it was time to put myself first. So she puts out her solo album. She moves to Los Angeles because she has a lot of music industry connections out there. And I guess just being a Spice Girl, you can get a lot done in America. Also, she had been so, so lonely. She goes, I'd gone from airports, private jets, constant interviews, and playing to thousands of people to resounding silence. Here I was living alone in my tiny one-bed flat in Finchley. Melby and Victoria were pregnant and loved up. Emma had her family close by. Jerry had moved on. So she goes out there and starts to really get a handle on her health. She hires a personal trainer because she finally realizes what I'm doing to my body is very bad. And this is her first step towards getting under control. She has a weird little friend group that includes Anthony Kiedis. Who she acts like is the greatest guy of all time, but fucks her over. And it seems like ices her out when she won't fuck him. Yeah, it seems like he just had a crush on her. She's also friends with this guy from the Sex Pistols. And she starts making her own music and being more rock and rolly. Being in L.A. helped me to slow down and reflect. I felt an overwhelming sense of freedom. She also finds a therapist and they come over to her house. It was in my first session that I admitted out loud for the first time to having an eating disorder. What a relief that was. Apart from Jerry and the odd comment here and there from the other girls, I'd never been asked if I was okay. Like, really okay. It's so hard to be like, I can't believe no one noticed. But they were all struggling so enormously that, like, it's just difficult to, like, notice what someone else is up to. She talks about how Anthony Kiedis had a crush on her. And I'm like, she must have been so insecure that she was like the least sexually coveted Spice Girl. Yeah. Because like, why would you go on and on about Anthony Kiedis having a crush on you? Like you were a Spice Girl. Millions of people had a crush on you. Like a lot of people had a crush on you. She talks about how hard it is to go solo just because for the most part, you're not going to be what you were as a band. And it is like hard to know that that level of success exists and that none of the Spice Girls were going to be solo as big as the Spice Girls. But on the other hand, I can't speak for Emma and Victoria, but because Mel B and Jerry were such strong characters and were written about so much, I think I felt like a spare part sometimes. But here I was in LA on my own, standing on my own two feet, doing my own thing, being taken seriously as an individual, as a human being, as an artist. She talks about doing a bunch of early gigs as a solo artist. She does this kind of punk festival and she gets booed to hell and like kind of yells at the audience she's like give me a chance and someone gives her really good advice being like you can't be mad at the audience they don't even know you yet 
She also talks about how she's like gigging for the first time in her life and really earning her stripes the way you're supposed to. You don't start out at number one. You go to all these little bars. She claims she was doing pubs. I'm like, that doesn't sound accurate to me. I'm sure you're doing like what me and Ashley hope to be doing in a few years. Yeah. She like, as the daughter of musicians, appreciates this opportunity to kind of work her way up the system. Here I was coming from the unimaginable success of the Spice Girls, and now I had achieved more than I could have hoped for with my solo record. In theory, I was on top of the world, but in reality, I was at rock bottom. She's still really struggling, and she doesn't realize it yet, but she is suffering from depression. Christmas time, 1999. She goes home for Christmas in Liverpool, and she starts binge eating really badly. And then they all go back to LA because she got her whole family like backstage tickets to see Red Hot Chili Peppers for New Year's Eve. And when she calls Anthony Kiedis' manager to check on the tickets, he's like, there are no tickets for you. And that's that. She never is like, oh, I called Anthony, fixed it. It seems like he just cut her out. So I don't know why she writes about him so glowingly in this book when it seems like within the span of six months, he cuts her out of his life entirely and like fucks over her whole family. They were like kind of good friends for a little bit. And then he was a bitch. What happened at the millennium was that I became more relaxed around food and I didn't have the energy to go to the gym. I couldn't get myself there. I think my body saw an opportunity to escape my restrictive eating and took it. I exchanged one eating disorder with another. From severe restriction, I began to binge. So now the Spice Girls are also gathering to do their first album without Jerry called Forever, and she just doesn't want to do it at all. She spends the first couple weeks of the new year just completely unable to get out of bed. I didn't want to do Forever whatsoever. Not then, not at that point. I wanted to finish up Northern Star, her solo album, and take a break, and then think about the future of the Spice Girls and my place within it. I simply couldn't cope anymore. I was having regular panic attacks. My anxiety was at an all-time high to the point where I was becoming agoraphobic. I starved myself, became anxious, and shut myself off because I was so unhappy. I hadn't had a period in over a year. I hadn't had a serious relationship really ever. She starts binge eating until she's unconscious. And of course, she's looking at the news and the media is criticizing her weight gain and making fun of her. You can imagine, can't you, how much that would hurt, how humiliating that would be? To be ridiculed in public for your weight, even at the best of times when you're happy, confident, and secure. To hear that when I was at my rock bottom was just devastating. There's no escape because you have to eat every day at least once a day. For other people, addiction means you stop doing the thing so you can recover. With eating disorders, you have to keep eating so you can recover. When I did start to date people, I was so ashamed of my eating that it made it impossible for anyone to get close to me. I'd still only eat pretty much fruit, vegetables, and maybe the odd bit of protein. I was so embarrassed, so ashamed, and my body had had enough. So she ends up checking herself into a mental health facility. And she's like, I've not been eating properly for a while, for years. I can't sleep. And if I do, I wake up at 3 a.m. and I can't go back to sleep. I'm scared to leave the house. I'm scared to have anyone over. I'm losing my mind. There's something seriously wrong with me. And so the doctor just looks at her and goes, okay, so the first thing we need to address is your depression. And that was like the first time she'd ever heard of it. I do think like mental health, especially back then, was really not discussed in England. So then she gets put on antidepressants and instead of recovering, she kind of goes deeper into it because she starts drinking more heavily and she's drinking on antidepressants, which is really not very good for you. I've got no memory of it, but it was during this period that I started to act out. The combination of the workload and awful mental health problems didn't make for a good combination. I'd slag off other bands and give the paps a hard time. On the surface, I was a gobby diva sounding off and getting herself in the papers. I would go to work events and binge drink and say silly things. Antidepressants and alcohol are a terrible mix. So she's like recording her part of the album from the U.S. She's not even meeting up with them. She wants to be around them as little as possible. Nobody seems to be checking in on her. Yeah. It's so weird. She's like, we were all so close. I was about to die and nobody noticed. But like you were saying before, I don't know who was her best friend. There was another reason I didn't want to be around the girls. I didn't want to be called out or questioned by them or to have to explain myself or defend the truth. 
She is so afraid of criticism from them. She accidentally says in an interview that things have gone a lot better since she's left. And people are like, did you leave the Spice Girls? And we just didn't know. And they have to have a sit down conversation with her and be like, are you leaving? Like, what is going on? Why'd you say that? We decided pretty much then and there that we weren't ever going to split up. Despite everything, Jerry's departure, me refusing to do a reunion for a number of years, Victoria going on in her own fashion, the Spice Girls have never officially split up and we never will. And she says this just because they don't want to fucking deal with the backlash to the announcement. The end of that year was dark and miserable and I have very few recollections about it. But slowly, painfully slowly, it felt at the time that the antidepressants started to work. The album came out. The workload trailed off. I started going to therapy and I started eating better and exercising more. So she talks about being one of the first people in the British music scene to talk about going through depression. And she talks about how like a lot of people in the industry have a lot of mental illness and just no one talks about it. Our vulnerability is perhaps the key to our ability to unlock creativity, but it's also the part that can let us down when the going gets tough, which when you become famous, it always does. It wasn't until I experienced fame myself that I realized that those of us who seek attention, affirmation, and applause are often the least equipped to deal with it. And then she goes on to be like, other people suffering from mental health problems or anyone who survived the pandemic. Yeah, she like goes on with a bunch of stats and then like gets on a real soapbox about why doesn't the government have mental health services? And then she's like, here's some things you could try if you're depressed. Sleep, eat, (laughs) walk. But then she says, you know, you're never fully healed. And whereas I'd like to say I'm at the other end of it, you never are, but I do my best and I'm better now than I've ever been. So she starts working on her next solo album, which is a lot better for her because she can create her own pace. Her first solo album sold 2 million and they wanted her next one to do 4 million, but it was at the same time that Napster was coming out and she's like, Napster tanked my album. And also it wasn't as good, but mainly that motherfucking Napster. She, without the other girls, did not have the backbone needed to like do her authentic music. She had a big song in Germany and they go, we'll make the rest of the album R&B ballads for Germany. And she's just like, sounds good. Yeah, she really had so much fear. And I think that she really needed the confidence of the girls around her to like be that person who just kicks down the door of the music industry. I don't think she had it in her to do it on her own. She also does like a rock and roll album where they tore the album before they record it so that they could record it all live, which was very interesting and cool to me. Yeah, that is cool. I like that she did that. She also did a reality show and like shredded her knee. They said that she had to do it to promote the song. And then she got thrown by Miss World onto the ground and ripped her knee off. And then she got dropped right then and there. They're like, well, if your knee's not working, we can't really promote this album. So they cut her from Virgin Records. But then she starts her own label because she's like, wait a second, I'm very rich and have a lot of connections in the music industry. So she does this album called Beautiful Intentions. And it seems like it just keeps going by accident. She's like, every time we thought it was over, another song would get remixed and it kind of gave it another life. And I just wanted to sleep. Anyway, then she meets this guy named Tom. I almost couldn't believe I'd met someone and he was sticking around. I'd had so many doomed relationships that never got off the ground, but for some reason, this guy didn't seem to be going anywhere and it made me feel more secure. It does kind of seem like her relationship with Tom was just that he was the one who stayed. She talks about a lot of celeb encounters. She knows Carrie Fisher. And then she releases another album called This Time, which she like didn't even put any work into. She says, there was no heart and soul in the album. And then there's a little bit of a buzz about reuniting the Spice Girls. And she's kind of into it. But she specifically is like, well, if I'm promoting the Spice Girls, they'll promote me back. And maybe my solo album will do better. Yeah. And she also like misses the group. She misses the girls. She misses the ego boost that comes with being a Spice Girl. When you're doing something Spice Girls, it's so big that people care. It's unhealthy, but it's really good for your ego. It makes you feel important again. It makes you feel worthy again about your little place on the planet. It's about a bit of recognition. 
Sometimes I think I work so hard as a solo artist. I give so many damn good performances and not so many people care. I've completely made peace with it, though, because it is what it is. She also notes that when they reunite, Mel B has her new husband there and they get bad vibes. Their reunion performance ends up actually getting cut short because Melby's husband, as we know, is very controlling and evil. And finally, they have a group chat and Mel C just says it like, listen, I don't feel comfortable with the fact that your husband's around all the time. And so Melby just storms out. We know what was really happening there. She was like going through a really hard time. And because of that, they just broke up again. But then when the Spice Girls reunion winds down, Mel C goes to Tom and says, I'm ready to have a baby. And she's like, listen, a lot of people say you don't just get pregnant whenever you want to. But I did. Yeah. I got pregnant and I loved it. And it's the first time she's able to take care of her body. Yes, she has Scarlett. She talks about how she had a horrible birth. She was in labor for like a billion hours. And of course, her husband was fucking annoying about it. She had wanted to do a fully natural birth, but it was awful. And so she says, I'm going to have to have pain relief. I can't do this anymore. Tom said, but you're doing so well. (laughs) Fuck off. I know some girls like to listen to this podcast with their boyfriends in the car. Boyfriends, listen the fuck up. If you and the girl who's making you listen to this podcast ever have a baby and you are helping her deliver that baby, which you should be, the only things you say are, I love you a lot and you're doing something amazing and whatever you want is what's going to happen right now. (laughs) The end. So she has baby Scarlett. It is lovely. Then she talks about raising her and really like distinctly it's so on her own. And I immediately said, where is your boyfriend? And then she says, he started spending more and more time in our house upstate, which is what I call Scotland. No, she calls it Scotland. You call it upstate. That's what I meant. (laughs) Also, is Wales Scotland? No, (laughs) because their house is in Wales. I knew she just said a different place. Anyway, so they're just like not even really living together. And then one day... She sits him down and she's like, I think we should break up. And he's like, what? And she's like, we don't live together. And then she says that Scarlett and her dad are so close. And it was really important to Melanie that Scarlett and her dad stay very close, even if they break up. And I'm like, how close could they have been if he was spending significant time out of state? But then she gets to be in a play. She stars in Blood Brothers. And shockingly, it goes well. She's prepared to not look at any of the reviews. And randomly, people thought she did a really good job. She even got nominated for an award. Yes, she feels great about it. She becomes kind of a theater kid. She becomes friends with Andrew Lloyd Webber. She starts judging one of his reality shows for Jesus Christ Superstar. And then she's in Jesus Christ Superstar. The problem is she keeps tanking all her money on her own albums that are like bombing their dicks off. She almost loses her house at one point. She like cannot stop pouring money into her failing music career. Creating a record label for just yourself when your records don't sell is not financially viable. So then she finally is broken down financially and decides to do another Spice Girls reunion. And so Sporty says that the rumors were that she was the one holding up their reunion. And I was like, is that what people were saying? She was like, everyone thought I was the one who didn't want to be part of the reunion because I thought I was too big for it with my solo career. And I was like, I had never heard that rumor in my life. I thought it was Victoria who didn't want to go back. But finally, the money was good enough and she was broken up and they signed on for 2019. And what was supposed to be a one-time show turns into a 13-city tour that grosses $78 million. That year, they were only beat by one band, and that was BTS. That is crazy. And they were beat by, like, a tiny margin. They were beat by, like, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Which, like, she does take time to be like, we only really did the UK, and BTS did, like, a way bigger tour than that. So ours is actually more impressive. And it's like, yeah, we already thought it was impressive. Don't worry. 
Jerry also apologized and is like, I was just being a brat. And I do think to minimize it to the point of like, I was just being a brat is actually worse. Especially to Mel C, who was like, and then I had a mental breakdown and could barely do Viva Forever. Like, they all went through hell. And I, why can't they all acknowledge it right now? Jerry's hell just crashed first. Yeah. I guess I just feel like because Jerry's crash spiraled everyone else's life so hard, it's not like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I was being such a bitch. But it was just so bad. And clearly they were all going through it. And they're all fine. Well, not Mel C, but... <laughs> I think Mel C is fine. She was, like, losing all her money, but then she did, like, Asia's Got Talent and the Spice World reunion, and she's like, I'm fine. She is in a financial place where if she just, like, decides to play into, like, I'm Sporty Spice, she can make a million dollars making a cameo, you know? Yeah, she also got a new boyfriend named Joe, who is her manager now, and she put out her most recent album, Melanie C., which she thought was her best album and actually got good reviews and finally cracked the top 10 for the first time in a while. Yeah, except for according to Wikipedia, her and Joe are now broken up. Sad. The Spice Girls reunion was great. It helped her confidence and it gave her this space, I think, to create the album that she's wanted to create for a really long time. Her nan died and was like, you're too soft, bitch. And she was like, oh my God, I needed to hear that. And then, I don't know, now she's just happy and she knows, you know, mental health is important and she hates the way that the health system handles mental health, but she says, we'll survive, baby. And then she said, Sporty Spice is not a character I play. It's who I am. It's a part of me. And she's excited to take that part on. What you've read within the pages of this book is what I want people to know about me, Melanie C., because I want people to take away strength and hope from this book. Okay, I guess I do feel like there is strength and hope in this book for sure, but I still don't know who she is. This was just a boring book. It just like wasn't that good. I get why it didn't do that well. I get why she didn't. Like it's funny when people at their core are like a little bit boring. So there's this thing I called the bachelor disease, which is when you're like, if only you had gotten to know the real me, you would have loved me because there's this idea that there's this central core in everybody. And if you could just get to that core, you would be in love with who they are or you would feel sympathy. And it's always funny to get to somebody's central core and just be like, there's no there there. And I think she has bachelor disease. Like if I write this book explaining that sometimes I get sad, people will understand the truth. And I'm kind of like, I guess I could have guessed the truth and I don't feel any differently now. Yeah. And I don't dislike her and I feel for her. And I have always had a place in my heart for Sporty Spice. I am Sporty Spice. But I also am like, all right, that was a lot of pages, my friend. It was a lot of pages for a story that had been told by four other people. And unfortunately, and I don't want to be mean, but she's like, I'm always insecure that I'm the least interesting one. And I'm like, well, baby, sometimes things come from somewhere. <laughs> we love you guys so much. This week, we were talking about pop culture on the Patreon. <laughs> Last week, we talked about Brooke Shields' Pretty Baby. And I just like love you guys so much. And I'm so happy to be home. And I can't wait to be with you all the time. And, I, and next week is Madison Beer. So save. Ooh, save your dicks. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I love you guys. Thank you so much to this week's five-star reviewers. Thank you, Cassie827. I appreciate you 24-7. TR Wall, this review is so beautiful. I am sprinting up a wall. Thank you, Miss Phil. This review filled me up with joy. Totally not a mommy dot 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 yet. Well, I appreciated this review like a motherfucker. Thank you to Lauren Sporin. Your sweet, sweet words were the friggin' anecdote, baby. Thank you to Med School Girl. Oh my gosh, your review brought me back to life. Thank you, doctor. Thank you to Sin Evil Overlord. I will worship whatever your shilling. Thank you to CHO852. Oh, 52 weeks a year. I appreciate you. 
Thank you to Not Like Kenny. Well, whether you're like Kenny or not like Kenny, I think you're the bee's friggin' knees. I sell booze. I appreciate your service. Cheers to you, my friend. I love ya. That's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.